This morning, as you can see, we're going to be looking at a passage from Ephesians chapter 4. And verse 24 is the verse that is up on the screens. That's the verse that we're going to focus a majority of our attention on here this morning. But look at the passage that begins with verse 17 and runs down through verse number 24. In a sermon that I've titled, Living the Better Life. Living the Better Life. Ephesians chapter 4, 17 to 24. Living the Better Life. When a person is saved, they don't become a better version of who they previously were. God doesn't fit them for upgrades or give them something new to put on, but transforms them entirely. We're told in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 17, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The idea being that God changes us entirely into a new creature. We're a new being. The change we experience when we're saved is even more drastic than the change we undergo when we die. Now, I want to, don't want to be too morbid, but there is not a whole lot that changes for the believer when he dies. He already has everything he needs for his entrance into his heavenly home because he has put his faith in Jesus Christ. He finally begins to experience the fullness of that new nature since his spiritual birth because he's finally freed from the sinful flesh that he's been occupying during his life here on earth. There's not a whole lot of change that takes place there compared to the change when a person is saved. Salvation brings about a change of mind. It brings about a change of our will. It brings about a change of our hearts, of our inheritance, of our relationship, of power and knowledge and wisdom, perception, understanding, just to name a few things that change. Those who are saved also have new righteousness, have new love and new desires and a whole new citizenship because they're now destined for heaven because of their faith in Christ. And there's so many more blessings included as part of this wonderful transformation that takes place when you come to Christ. When the Apostle Paul spoke of his own transformation, he said in Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So he describes there... His old nature, the old life of who he was before he was saved. He describes that old nature being crucified, he says. He's dead with it. And now he is living a new life that is in Christ. The one who is saved has a new outlook on life. The one who is saved recognizes that Jesus Christ is the one by whom all of these changes have taken place. All of these blessings have come about. He recognizes that the entire debt of his sin, everything that he's done, past, present, future, will do, has all been paid off by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He recognizes that he is no longer on his way to hell. He is on his way to heaven because his faith in Jesus Christ eternally secures him to that destiny. He's a new person since Christ has saved him. And as a result, the former things of the old life, many of which are no longer appealing to him. I've seen it. 
I've seen where God transforms individuals, those whose speech was so vulgar, those whose actions were so crude, those whose behavior and whose lifestyle so disgraceful as seeing God change these people into some of the most kind and the most generous people you would have ever met. And before that, they were the exact opposite. The things they were used to uh, before the Lord saved them often become detestable to them. God gives them a new life, and God gives them, with that new life, new desires. But the big question we have to ask ask ourselves is, why do we then continue to sin once we're saved? Why do we continue to make mistakes? Why do we continue to make foolish decisions even after we're saved. If Christ has saved us and we're set to be to going to heaven no matter what once we're saved, why do we continue to make mistakes? And listen to what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 7 and verses 17 to 20. He said, Now then it is no more that I do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, But how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. So a little confusing, but the gist of what he's saying is, in my mind, he says, I know what I need to be doing. In my mind, because of who Jesus is and what he's done for me, I know the course and I know the direction that my life should be going in. And I know how I should be living based on what Jesus has done for me and all the blessings that he has bestowed upon me. But he says, I find myself doing the exact opposite. I find it being a struggle to go down this path that I I know I should be doing and changing these areas of my life that I know should be changing. I find it a struggle And I find myself doing those things that I know I shouldn't be doing. Even though my mind tells me this is the right path. Have any of you ever ever felt that? And have you ever found yourself where you wake up in the day and you're faced with a number of decisions and what to do and how to go about it the right way. And your mind tells you, well, this is the right way to do things. If you really want to make things right, this is how things need to be done. But your heart is telling you, but boy, it would really feel good to do it this way. And there's this inner struggle that is going in two different directions. And Paul says here, he says, I know what I need to be doing. And it's this path here. But often, he says, I find myself giving into my flesh and giving into my own sinful desires and going down this path. Even though at the beginning, he says, I know this way is going to be self-destructive and self-defeating, but man, it's so hard to let it go. And even when I'm in the middle of doing it, I know I shouldn't be doing it, and I know I'm going to regret it, and yet I still do it. And have you ever been there? Isn't it so frustrating? So frustrating. You you know that you're going to regret it. You're going to immediately be remorseful for what you've done. And yet you still do it. You still give in. And this is what he's getting at. He says, in my head, I know what I should be doing. My flesh and my desire of my heart wants to go a different direction. And he says, I'm struggling with this every single day. I'm being ripped apart. Even though we may be saved, we're still going to struggle with sin. We still possess a sin nature in our flesh or our heart doesn't easily jump on board with our minds that have been renewed by the grace of God. Our flesh does everything it can to keep us from acting like we're saved. If if the path of salvation, if the path that God has called you to walk because you're saved is here, and our flesh is going to constantly pull us away from that. 
It's going to constantly try and lead us down a different path, the one that's going to be more pleasurable, at least is what it's trying to sell us on. Our flesh is a relic. It's a relic of an old, unbelieving nature that just clings to us with every fiber of its being and tries to prevent us from walking the path that we should walk, from growing spiritually the way God wants us to. Our sin nature may continue to cling to us, but the good part is that it no longer has the same power over us that it once did. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 14, the Bible says there, it says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. The power that sin once had over you no longer is possible once you come to faith in Christ. Because Christ has destroyed that power. He's destroyed that life and transformed you into a new being and a new creature with new desires. The penalty of sin has been paid for. Even if we still face consequences for doing foolish things here on earth, the ultimate penalty of that has been taken care of when you personally trust Jesus. Based on the fact that believers are new creatures, Paul makes two appeals here in Ephesians chapter 4. He appeals us to walk worthy of our calling. We looked at that last week, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 1. To walk worthy of our calling. And then to abandon the lifestyle of that old nature. And that's what we're going to be looking at here this morning. He's called us to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called in verse number 1. And now he's calling us to abandon the lifestyle of that old nature. Notice what it says in verses 17 to 24 here in Ephesians chapter 4. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So he's calling us here to abandon the lifestyle of that old nature. Who you were before you were saved cannot be who you are after you are saved. And he introduces what the walk of the believer should look like by contrasting it with what it looked like before you were saved. There are qualities, there are characteristics that may have been present in your life before you were saved, which honestly have no place in us as new creations in Christ. Things that need to go is what he's saying. They were okay in your old life because you were living apart from Christ. You were living just on your way to hell to be blunt. But now that you're in Christ, he's called you to something better. He's called you to live a better life. And this is things, there are things in our lives, therefore, that need to change. There are things that need to be shed. Now, while it was expected, again, that certain characteristics be present, we act a certain way before Christ saved us, our new life should be much different. So let's start, first of all, by taking a look at that old walk. Take a look at your old walk. Look at verses 17 and 19 again because it gives us a description of what that looked like. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk, not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, 
having the understanding darkened, be, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Based on everything that Jesus has done for us, we should, he says here, walk not as other Gentiles walk. There should be something that sets us apart as Christians. There should be something distinct that sets us apart. And not just that you go to church on Sunday. But beyond the walls of this building, there should be something identifiable that if anyone outside of this building looked at you, they'd see, yes, this man is different. She is different. And based on the way she responds, just based on the way she talks and the conversation that she has and the language that she uses and the way she holds and conducts herself and responds and reacts to different situations, there's something different about this person as opposed to everyone else that I've been around. There should be something different about us. We cannot accomplish what God wants us to accomplish if we're continuing to live like we were before we were saved. We're called to a new life and one that requires us to live in a new nature, the nature that we've been transformed into. The believers that were the original recipients of this small letter of Ephesians were surrounded by all sorts of paganism, all sorts of idolatry. And that was their life. That was what they were once all a part of. That's what was prevalent in those days. They would regularly pass by the same places that they used to frequent, the same company of people that they would spend time with. All of these things were all there of their old life, and they were surrounded by it. And so Paul is telling them, and he's really telling us as well, this may have been who you were, you may have been entrenched in this, engrossed in it. It may have been, all of, all of this may have been part of who you were. But now that you've been saved, now that Christ has changed you, make that change outwardly as well. Live that new life that he's called you to live. Don't engage in all those same practices. Don't embrace all those same habits. Don't do all the same things that you were doing before. There's a new, a new life that he's been calling you to. They faced regular temptations to fall back into their old lifestyle. And this is what he was pleading them, pleading for them to avoid. He said, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk not as the other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. The same idea is expressed by the Apostle Peter. He said in, in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verses 3 and 4, it says, For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Now, here's the truth of the matter. The moment you're saved, the moment you commit your life to Jesus Christ and believe on him, we have spiritually left this world. You're still here, you're existing physically, but spiritually your home is now in heaven. We're still here interacting on this earth like we were before we were saved, but now we're citizens of heaven living on earth in the interim. How many of you, show of hands, how many of you have visited another country? Have any of you visited another country where they dress different, act different? You're, you're kind of laughing, right? And if you visited another country and you stood out like a sore thumb because you were dressed like we dress here, but they dress much differently there. Yeah, anyone? A couple of you? 
There are certain distinctions that set us apart depending on where our citizenship rests. We may look different. We may act different. Sometimes you'll visit some place where they talk different. We may even walk different. So much so that we stand out drastically because everything we do is so much different than what the people where we are do. And this is the message of these verses here. When we lived out all of the years that we were unsaved, apart from Christ, we belonged to this world. We fit in. How we dressed, how we acted, how we reacted, how we spoke, how we walked, all of it fit in with the expectations and the citizenship of this world. But now that we've been saved, we've been transformed, the Bible says, into citizens of heaven. Our spirit leaves and is now in heaven with God, and this is the idea that we're destined for heaven. No longer a child of the devil destined for hell. We're a child of God destined for heaven. So we should start looking like we belong to God instead of belonging like the world. Now, some of you in here have been saved for many years and some of you not even a year. Regardless of how long it's been, how many of you are still holding on to the relics of the past life that you lived before you were saved? I'm not going to ask for showing you. But every hand would go up to that question as to how many of us are holding on to relics from our past life regardless of how long you've been saved. There are things that we haven't completely shed and let go of. How many of us are still wanting to maintain certain habits, certain practices, hobbies, friendships, things that we know we have no business maintaining now that we're in Christ. I'm not looking for hands. But God didn't save you to give you freedom to go and to live as you please without the fear of facing any consequences. God has saved us to set us apart for a much better life. A better life than what we've ever lived. A better life than what this world ever offers. But many of us are still stuck in the past. If Christ were to come over to your house for lunch after church this morning, okay, think about this. If he's going to come over to your house, some of you would, would leave right now to go clean, to go tidy up, to go make sure that things look presentable. You wouldn't even hear the rest of this message. But how many of you would go home, and, and aside from tidying up, which you should do anyways, but how many of you would go home and, and start hiding things that you don't want to be found? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. In 1 John chapter 2 and verses 15 through 17, it describes how things should be for the believer. It says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. See, the idea is, is that the world offers us a lot. A lot that looks good, a lot that sounds good, a lot that feels good. But all of that has an expiration date. All of that offers only temporary satisfaction. Because that's why you have to keep going back to it. Because whatever satisfaction you got out of it lasted only for a short time. 
and then it faded and it wore off. And then you have to keep feeding yourself of those things because that's how you keep the feeling going. That's how you keep the excitement amped up. Because everything the world offers only lasts for a short amount of time. And eventually, it all is gone. It's all gone. And then the one who is loving the world, he says, more than loving God, is going to find that at the end of the day, he is most miserable. Because as much as he got satisfaction and enjoyment out of things of the world, it only lasted for a brief period of time. I don't care if it lasted 60, 70, 80, 90 years. In the grand scope of eternity, that is a drop in the bucket. What he's trying to get at is that what God offers you are eternal satisfactions, eternal joys, eternal pleasures. A, a life that is so much better than what this world could ever offer you in its entirety. Too many Christians are still holding on to the drink, still holding on to cigarettes, still holding on to corrupt speech, still holding on to fornication, still holding on to dishonest practices, Still holding on to unclean things that we put before our eyes. Still holding on to ungodly relationships and all sorts of other things that we know we shouldn't be. Things that we know that are sinful. Things that we know are vain and empty at the end of the day. The plea to abandon these things which do not benefit but actually hinder us is not a suggestion of some narrow-minded preacher but God's standard for those that belong to him. What message do we convey to the world if we claim to be Christians and yet we walk and talk and act like everyone else outside of church? What message are we conveying to them? God has not put a, his stamp of approval on anything that is unholy or anything that is sinful. So why do we continue to entertain such things in our lives if we know in our head that these things are wrong and shouldn't be accepted? If we know in our head that if Jesus were there in our living room while we're watching what we're watching on TV or while we're doing these things that we're doing out in the, out in the town, if we knew if Jesus was here, we'd be doing things differently, why do we still do them? Why do we act as if it is such a bad thing to be different from others in the world? Why is association and acceptance from the world so high on our list? The very essence of the gospel message, the message that Jesus Christ came to, to die for sinners and to offer a home in heaven for all who believe in him, the very essence of that is to be in complete opposition to the standards of the world. So why should it surprise us that we're to look different and act different and walk different? So, taking a look at our old nature. But second, let's take a look at four quick characteristics of our old self. He mentions a few specific things here. In verse number 17, he says, first, we walked in vanity. He says, we walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. When it comes to spiritual and moral issues, unbelievers cannot think the same as believers. They just can't comprehend the same things that, that Christians can. And that's not because they lack intellectual understanding. But listen to what we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 12 through 14. The Bible says, Now we, and it's speaking of Christians, of believers, it says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man, and that's the unsaved individual, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. 
So it shouldn't surprise us when the unsaved of the world act a certain way or speak a certain way or dress a certain way. They're living according to the standards of the world, which change every single day. Go back 20 years and just what's based on what's on television. And you can see how much things have changed as to what is acceptable to be putting on television today as opposed to 20 years ago. Go back 50 years and things change even more drastically from where they were 50 years ago as opposed to where we are today. Just speaking about television, I mean, that's just one thing out of a whole mess of things that have changed so drastically because the standards of the world keep changing every single day and they're not changing for the better, they're changing for the worse. The people of the world is, it, are, are living this way and it shouldn't surprise us that they keep changing and things keep progressively getting worse because the standards to which they're living by keep changing. Since sinfulness flows out of a corrupt mind, the mind is the first area that, that needs that transformation. And this is why Christianity begins in our mind before it's ever put into practice. It is our thinking that first considers that we ever need God, that we ever need the gospel, that we ever need Jesus Christ. It is our thinking that leads us to believe the historical facts of what the Bible says, that Jesus Christ was a real person, that he did go to the cross on our behalf, that he was buried in that tomb, and three days later he rose from the grave. It is believing those historical facts and the spiritual truths that are found in the Word of God that lead us to receive Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Now, many in those days believed that any issue, any matter could be resolved through reasoning. If you could gather enough information, if you could learn as much as possible, nearly every problem could be reasoned down to a solution. And this is the concept that Paul was refuting here in verse number 17. Again, he says, This I, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. The Gentiles, or unbelievers, think that if they can only think enough about a problem or learn enough about a situation, use their minds enough to figure out an answer that it eventually will come to them. The problem with this is that, as we saw earlier, the natural man, the one who doesn't know Jesus, cannot understand the things of the Spirit, leading ultimately to nothing or to emptiness in his life. The life of the unbeliever is consumed in the pursuit of goals that are ultimately selfish in the accumulation of things which are temporary and in looking for satisfaction in things that have little to no value. And this happens because the unsaved person bases everything on a mind that has not been renewed. His moral compass is, is based on what he deems is right or what he deems is, is wrong according to meaningless and unproductive thoughts. This is the self-centered emptiness that really characterizes our age that we see today. We read in Psalm 94 and verses 8 through 11, the Bible says, understand ye, brutish, uh, understand ye, uh, brutish among the people, and you fools, when will ye be wise? He that planted the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? He that chastiseth the heathen, the heathen, shall he not correct? He that teacheth man knowledge, shall not he know? The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity." After experiencing a life with every worldly advantage, every worldly pleasure, Solomon declared this in Ecclesiastes 1.14. He said, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity 
and all his vexation of spirit. And yet year after year, day after day, month after month, people still think that vain pursuits are going to produce satisfying results. The world may not know any better, but believers should. We walked in vanity, and secondly, our understanding was darkened. Verse 18 says, having the understanding darkened. Now, this speaks of being ignorant of God's truth. We weren't just walking in vanity, but unsaved. We were spiritually ignorant. Verse 18 makes it clear that we were in this position because of our own doing. It says, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Just because you have a, a dozen college degrees doesn't mean that your understanding is opened and no longer darkened. In 2 Timothy 3, 7, it tells us that there are plenty of people who know a lot and continue to learn quite a bit, but never learn the truth. It says they are ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. They're almost too smart for their own good. They reason too much away. They logic too much away. And so their vast knowledge is almost a brick wall standing before them and actually learning about God and understanding who he is. I've met people who have read the Bible cover to cover several times and think that it is nothing more than some good book with some good teachings and some historical lessons. The unsaved person has an inability to fully understand and to fully comprehend the things of God, which are the only things truly worth knowing. In Romans chapter 1 and verses 21 to 22, it describes such people. It says, Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools." This darkness of understanding was once the position that every single one of us here in this room found ourselves in. And this speaks of both ignorance and it speaks of immorality as well. We were in this position of darkness because we were separated from God. Our sin did that. That is the blindness of our hearts that's referenced there at the end of verse number 18. Sin has a way of paralyzing a person's heart to the point that they're unable to have any sort of spiritual truth and comprehend any sort of spiritual truth, making them completely insensitive to the things of God. And Satan loves to play off of this. We're told in, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, it says, In whom the God of this world, and that's a reference to Satan, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So Satan is playing off of the, the minds of the unsaved, which cannot comprehend God, because sin stands in the way, and he prevents them from ever knowing and understanding and believing in God. The unsaved of the world are willingly blinding their own hearts to the truth of God, but believers should know better. And third, we were also spiritually and morally numb. Look at what it says in verse 19. It says, Who being past feeling." who being past feeling, that speaks of spiritual and moral, almost indifference, insensitivity. The more people turn away from God and the more people turn towards sin, the easier it becomes to ignore God 
They become apathetic to moral and to spiritual matters. They don't care about living up to the standards that God has instituted in the Bible because they don't view their, they don't view their ever-changing standards as being wrong. Even their own moral compass, the conscience that God has given every single person, the, the innate knowledge of right and wrong becomes severely skewed the longer that we give in to sin. And listen to what we're told in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Having their conscience seared with a hot iron. There's an old story about a, a boy who stole a fox. And as he stole this fox, he happened to come upon the individual upon whom, from whom he stole the fox. And not wanting to be caught in his act, he took the fox and he stuffed it underneath his shirt. And he stood as still as he could possibly stand, even while the fox was literally clawing away at his insides. At the cost of his own painful death, the boy would not own up to his wrong. And this is what we're seeing. This is what we're seeing in society today, that, that rather than being discovered for what is truly wrong, people are determined to remain unflinching in their beliefs, even though they know it's wrong and what they're engaging in is literally destroying them. People have become numb to their sins and the consequences of sin and choose to remain in agony rather than admitting that the way they're choosing to live is actually the way of death. And then on the other hand, sins that used to be hidden, sins that used to be completely frowned upon are being indulged, not just privately, but publicly, openly. In some cases, people don't even bother with even a semblance of morality. They're, they're just so numb to sin. They don't care how they look. They don't care who's around them or what they're even opening themselves up to. And as a result, we have a world of people who are, are slowly killing themselves by those things that they think are actually bringing them pleasure. The unsaved are numb, spiritually and morally. Believers should know better. And fourth, we had an unclean mind. Look at verse 19. It says, Who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Lasciviousness speaks of the absence of moral restraint, specifically in the area of sexual sins. One commentator has described it as the idea of unbridled self-indulgence and undisciplined obscenity. God has given every single human being a conscience. So we all start with some idea of right and wrong. And we all know when we've violated that standard. Whatever that standard is, because it's different person to person, but God has given us the ability to, to rationalize between what is right and what is wrong. And we all know when we violated that. This, this inner compass tells us that we've done wrong. God has given every single person that ability. And this usually leads people, when they've done wrong, to try and cover up what they've done, even if they continually find themselves doing the same thing every single day. They're trying to cover it up and try, trying to cover it up all over and over and over again. Their conscience tells them it's wrong, but the more they ignore their conscience and those feelings of guilt that come when they know they're doing wrong, the more they ignore it, the more they train themselves to actually reject that initial set of standards 
and determine that now they're going to set some new standards and live by their own desires. They give in to their unclean mind and they give themselves over to sensuality. And all these people care about is gratifying their own pleasures and they'll go to any end to see that they do just that. And in many instances, these people lose all touch with reality. And everything about their life becomes distorted on its way to being destroyed. Those who have given themselves over to lasciviousness, as it mentions there in verse number 19, to, uh, they, they begin to work all uncleanness with greediness, the Bible says. The idea being that the ungodly person literally makes business out of every kind of impurity. He finds a way to profit from this. There's so much filth out in the world that people have been profiting off it for many years now. And anyone with a smartphone or a TV or a computer can access things that are filthy intentionally or even unintentionally. The way that things are, they just pop up on your screen without you wanting it to be there. This world of uncleanness is directly tied into greediness because these people are evaluating their lives in material terms. When a person determined to think his own way and give in to his own selfish desires, he turns his back on God and turns his back on the truth and begins living without standards of morality. Immorality then becomes an easy life to embrace because the mind slowly destroys past notions of good and evil, what you started with. And the godless life is embraced, which is ultimately the mindless life. So these are the, the characteristics of the old life. But third, I want you to see quickly what our walk should look like. In light of all these things, what should, what should we be doing? Look at verses 20 to 24 really quickly again. But you have not so learned Christ. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. This new life in Christ is completely opposite from that previous life. We are to be centered on Christ first. Paul is admonishing every single Christian who is not centered on Christ to realize what he has come from. He says, you may have been part of that old life. All these things may have been who you were. But Christ saved you from that. So start living the new life, the better life. What we need to understand is that the ways of God and the ways of the world, they're, they're not compatible. There's this false idea that believers don't have to give up things that they were embracing and things that they were involved in now that they're saved. The very reason we first trusted in Christ was to be saved from this wicked generation. You realize that, that walking the path of self-indulgence and self-promotion and self-pleasure wasn't working out. That there's something was missing along this route. That there was a void that could only be filled by something else. And then once you found it in Christ, why would you want to go back to what you know wasn't working? And so he's saying, abandon that. You saw that it wasn't working. That's why you trusted in me over here. So why go back to what you know is ultimately failure and destructive? Stick with what is productive and what is edifying. And this is what he's trying to do to remind ourselves of, of what we've come from. Be centered on Christ. We're still going to fall into sin. We're still going to struggle with temptation. But our new position in Christ, it ensures that we're free from the eternal punishment of our sin. 
In 2 Corinthians 5 and verses 14 and 15, the Bible says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which should live, should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So the idea is that when, when Jesus Christ saves us, and he's the only one that brings salvation, we should have a desire to live for him because he saved us out of that life that was leading to eternal destruction. And the encouraging part is that the moment we're saved and believe in him, God sends us the Holy Spirit to come and live in our hearts, to convict us when we go back to that old life, to make us miserable when we start embracing those things that we were embracing before we were saved. When Christ saves us, the Holy Spirit gives us the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16 tells us, For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we as Christians have the mind of Christ. The mark of the true Christian is the one who starts to think like Christ. The one who acts like Christ. The one who loves like Christ. The one who lives like Christ in every area of his life. We're to be centered on Christ, but we're also to know God's truth. Look at verse 21. It says, If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. A person is only saved when he comes to the knowledge of Christ. But knowing God's truth doesn't begin and just end at salvation. Knowing God's truth refers to living in a constant fellowship with him. We need to be constantly increasing in the knowledge of God. And living the life God wants us to live requires getting to know more about God. Spending time with him. Reading the Bible. Praying to him. We're to remember also that we've been delivered from that old nature. Verse 22 says that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Sometimes it's, it's just a good reminder to remind ourselves what Christ saved us from. I often joke, because I was saved, trusted in Christ as a four-year-old, I often joke that when Christ saved me, he saved me from the days of when I was involved in the tricycle gang. It doesn't matter when you were saved. It just matters that you realize that he saved you from whatever that past life was. Because in that past life, no matter who you were, who you were to the world, who you were to yourself, you were on your way to hell. Trying to do things your way, trying to get by your own way and you're using your own methods and always falling short. And once he saves you, he puts you on a new trajectory. You're destination is now heaven and he offers you the opportunity to live a better life a life where you don't have to keep failing doing things the way the world suggests and sticking to the standards of the world but looking to him being centered on him and having these reminders from time to time what he saved you from because as much as we're still imperfect we're going to eventually at some times we're going to fall back into some of those old habits because they were appealing to us. That's why we got involved in them in the first place. And we think there may be some benefit to them, to us engaging in them again. But the reminder of what God saved us from is necessary to keep us on that right trajectory, to keep us with the right mindset. We're, we're saved eternally. Nothing changes that. But we bring all sorts of extra issues that don't need to be there when we're not walking the path that God has called us to walk. Remind yourself that it was entirely Jesus that saved you and there was no contribution of your own. 
the overall message is that in Christ, the old nature no longer exists. We, we, as it says there, we put off concerning the former conversation. We put off that old nature and are made new creatures in Christ. We're not the same person we were before we're saved, and it should show. And then we should also embrace this new self. Look at verses 23 and 24. It says, And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. When a person is first saved, God renews his mind, allowing him to perceive and understand things that he wasn't previously able to perceive and understand. This renewal of mind, it doesn't always take place all at once. God doesn't snap his fingers and all of a sudden you're now enlightened and you know everything there is to know. But progressively throughout your Christianity, the more time you spend with God, the more you're reading the Bible, the more he's going to open up your eyes and your mind to understand and see different things that you never saw and never understood before. The more you're going to look around and see that there are little things that God has been orchestrating through your life to get you to where you are today. And if you continue to keep your life centered on him, he's going to keep things going and keep orchestrating all these things and ultimately bring out your good as you're trusting in him from day to day. Embrace that new life. There are resources that God uses to renew our minds, and these resources are the Bible. Use the Bible. Read it. Pray to Him. Ask Him for help. Thank Him for what He's done in your life. This is how we're able to gain the mind of Christ. This is how we learn more about Him. The more we act and think like Him is only possible through getting to know Him in the Bible. The more, you, more time you spend him, with Him, the more you start to resemble Him. They say that the longer a couple is married, the more they start to look alike. I feel so sorry for Ruthie. <laughs> the renewed mind of the believer is part of the new creation that we are in Christ. As we have been clothed in righteousness that is found only in Christ and declared justified in the sight of God, he's done that immediately. When we were previously walking in vanity with our understanding darkened, spiritually and morally numb, having this unclean mind, we're now enlightened in Jesus Christ. We're learning the truth. We're sensitive to sin. We're trying to live in purity and we're trying to be generous with how we live. In Christ, we're new, but we're not entirely new. We're saved immediately. 